0: Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Dr. Michael Silverstein, who is one of the founding partners of Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates and is OBGYN and currently practicing primarily on our 94th Street location at Carnegie Women's Health. Welcome, Mike. How are you
1: doing? Thank you very much. You're doing great. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What's your story? Well, started out in Queens, been there for Most of my life, taught special ed in Queens for 10 years before I went to medical school. Medical school was Cleveland, residency in North Shore in Manhasset, joined the full-time faculty at NYU, taught the medical students, the residents, had a faculty practice, and then four of us invested in Maternal-Fetal Medicine Associates and started at that in 2005. And it's uh, grown dramatically in the depth and breadth in terms of the patients we care for the ultrasound services and consultative services we provide. And just this year, we opened up Carnegie Women's Health, three of us who no longer deliver, practicing women's care. We take care of many of the patients we've delivered over the years who are no longer having kids, many who are moving into menopause, a whole other group that are bringing their daughters who are going off to college for their initial gynecologic care. We see several OB patients, new OB patients, postpartum OB patients, but the the major thrust is on gynecology. We added a fascinating aesthetics program to our office. We sometimes refer to it as the mommy makeover. We do a couple of different things, such as fat pad reduction, as well as removing wrinkles, scars, blemishes, all without any radiation, just using radio frequency. So it's a very exciting place to be for our practice. And uh, we really feel like we're providing full care for, for all of our patients. You've basically been in New Yorker
0: your whole life, minus your time in medical school, correct? That's correct. I want to talk a little bit about your experience in teaching and special ed. And so go into it a little bit more. What exactly were you doing when you were a special ed teacher?
1: So it was a private school for special education. I worked in the high school. I had a self-contained class of 12 kids, bright, high-functioning, Uh, behaviorally impaired, many dyslexic. They had various different names and descriptors for them uh, over the years, but it was a GED, an equivalency degree, and several even went off to college. It was immensely gratifying and uh, a lot of fun to be with these kids all day. Did you ever think of the time that you'd end up in medical school when you were doing this? You know, I looked at, or or my mom actually showed me an autograph book from third or fourth grade and what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wrote doctor. And I thought it was sort of like a kid saying, I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut. And uh, after I got my master's in special ed, I said, all right, now what? And I started taking pre-med classes. So for about four years, I was teaching full-time, making very little money, tutoring four afternoons a week, going to school four nights a week, and then to supplement income a little bit more, I was selling shirts at my uncle's store on the Lower East Side. So five years later, by the time I got to medical school, it was one thing to do, and it was actually very straightforward not to have that frenetic schedule. And were you yet married to Judy at that time? Got married to Judy in medical school. In so medical school. was uh, a couple of years after teaching. Met her while I was teaching and then fled to medical school. And third year we got married and honeymooned in Alaska. And now we have three children, 35, 25, and 23, all firmly planted on the ground. And as in a sermon many years ago, a rabbi once said, the two things you have to give your kids are roots and wings. And so they all know where home is and they come home frequently, but they all feel very comfortable in various locations. My middle child is in Ohio, selling insurance for Progressive. My youngest is in France, teaching English as a second language in southern France for the academic year. And my older son is in a startup in Manhattan. So they all are doing great. And we remain immensely close and see each other every chance we get.
0: And are they all proper Mets fans like Judy?
1: They have to be, absolutely. You know, Judy's uh, dad from the Bronx and was himself not a professional, but a minor league pitcher in his day. My earliest memories of baseball were sitting on my grandfather's lap watching the 69 World Series, you know, Shea Stadium over the years and Citi Field now, uh, just devout uh, Met fans. They say the Mets are the cicadas of Major League Baseball. Every 13 to 15 years, they come up from deep underground, they sprout, they win the World Series, and they go deep for many, many years to come. Not quite (laughs) as severe as the Chicago Cubs, who do that every 75 years, but pretty similar Stories. That was, for those who don't know, I'm a big
0: Cubs fan, and that was a dig from Mike towards me. And so, after you came back to New York and you completed your residency and you're at NYU, you continued your teaching there, maybe not in special ed, but in medical student education, correct?
1: Absolutely. I I think that teaching is is my niche, whereas many of the maternal fetal medicine doctors in the practice, Dr. Fox, Dr. Barber, Dr. Saltzman, who is here, did a lot of publication and a lot of research. I manifest all those interests into sharing knowledge and teaching medical students and residents a whole litany of uh, awards and and things like that 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 were on my wall once. But it's just immensely gratifying. I think if you you can't share your information with somebody and pass it on, you're not doing a a true service to your cause, to medicine, and to the program in general.
0: Mike is being humble here. He was beloved as a teacher uh, at NYU and at Mount Sinai. And not only did he win pretty much every single teaching award there ever was, but the students would come back with photos and parties, and they just adore Mike for good reason. And how did you find that your background in special education helped you with medical education? Did it have any impact on how you taught, or was it just more experience behind you?
1: Special ed was all about breaking things into concrete, digestible matters. You'd use graphic examples for mathematics. You'd use visuals for earth science. You would show videos for history. Just trying to break things down into the simplest forms. And that translated very easily into medicine. So many topics are are just made so lengthy and confusing by some of the authors because they're speaking on a high esoteric level. And, and not dumbing it down, but just breaking it into its simplest terms using graphic examples and metaphors to explain simple things like gestational diabetes, for example. Tell the patients that sugar goes into the top of an hourglass, and depending upon how narrow the neck is, the sugar accumulates in the top of the hourglass. And so if you have little bits at a time, your sugar is never going to go up. And so when you use the hourglass analogy, you know people kind of get it, patients get it, medical students get it. I don't think anybody feels they're condescended to; they just appreciate the graphic example.
0: And I think that that's actually an important point when you shifted from medical student education and resident education to how you speak to patients and how you teach them. And there's so much overlap because obviously medical students have some degree of knowledge, but generally they don't. And the patients we see also they're they're bright and they're eager and they they're able to learn, but they just don't have the information. And so so much of what you do when you teach medical students spills over to what you do and how you speak to patients and how you talk to them and explain things to them and try to get them to understand. Would you agree with that?
1: hundred percent. And certainly listening to the students when you're dealing with them on an individual basis, listening to the patient, trying to get their perspective, their understanding. And it's especially important when you deal with patients who are themselves physicians or professionals or scientists. You know, you don't want to speak on the scientific level, but you don't want to insult them by breaking things down into too simple. So it's walking a fine line between, between all of those. Uh, right down to patients that have no knowledge at all of medicine, in which case the simplest analogies work the best. I totally agree with that. And it's part of the reason that having a relationship with
0: people and understanding who they are and where they come from is critical in trying to explain what's going on and try to help them Uh, whether it's with pregnancy or whether it's with their general health, you have to be speaking to them on terms that they're going to understand and they're going to grasp and they're going to relate to. Otherwise, it just isn't going to work no matter how bright you are or how much you know.
1: I couldn't agree more. And if you look at our practice, we have a heck of a lot more physicians than we started out with, but they're all people people. They're all people that relate, that listen, that communicate and are compassionate and empathetic. And besides being excellent physicians, they have made uh, enormous relationships with patients, some fresh out of residency, some after coming to us other practices for 10 or 15 years. It's just a, a very remarkable practice to do uh, what we do with the, with the care that we're able to provide for a huge variety of patients.
0: And in the same regard, it's also important to realize that each one of us has our own personalities. I was just speaking to someone yesterday and they asked me, what is my technique in terms of talking to people in a difficult situation, how to make it more calm or whatever? And I said, I am who I am, right? If if you have to just sort of be your personality and guide that. And Mike, you're very well known for your personality. And I, I always tell people you're very shy. Very reserved. You stay in your shell. Is, is, is that a good description of who you are?
1: That pretty much summarizes exactly who I am. I was never calm. I was never shy. I've never had any difficulty speaking, uh, speaking in public, uh, speaking in private. But it's also very important to sit back and listen. So you can't just be out there and making loud noises, which I've been known to do from time to time. But it's also important to listen and really hear what what people are saying and what patients are saying. And truthfully, that's been the most difficult for me. I've been in medicine for 25 years now. I'm in my 60s. I still ski. I still bike ride. I exercise every day. So I don't feel like I'm in my 60s. But I've certainly learned how to lean back and listen a little bit more than perhaps I have done in the past. It's helped me grow. You never stop growing in medicine. You you learn from your patients, you learn from your colleagues, and you you kind of smooth out the rough edges over the years. A
0: few things about Mike is that you're the kind of person that when people meet you, they immediately feel like they're an old friend of yours. That's just your way. You Everyone's greeted with a smile, frequently a hug. It's very personable. It's very enjoyable. And I think people relate to you very quickly. It's it's more than a personality trait. It's a real talent to be able to make others at ease so quickly uh, with the situation, particularly if it's a very stressful situation. And your way is
1: one of the many ways to do it, but it certainly works. And when patients ask me about the practice and they talk about the volume of doctors, I tell them that we're not carbon copies of each other. You're not going to get the exact same thing from every physician. And I encourage them, uh, certainly for obstetrics, to make the rounds and meet the doctors. They all have enormous skill sets. Everyone has a uh, a different degree of of skills in one area or the other. So they're not gonna get uh, a carbon copy of any one of us. And many people will come in, they say, nope, I just wanna see so-and-so, and and I'll take my chance on being delivered by somebody else. But I really think that to get a taste for the practice, to, to mix it up and see as many of the docs as you can, is always very helpful. Another thing that not everyone realizes is that Mike keeps
0: tremendous records, and he is really the the record keeper of our practice. And you could probably, if I asked you to go get your laptop, you could tell me exactly how many deliveries you've done in your career. You may even know that offhand. How many have you done? Just under 4,000. Just under 4,000. And Mike could tell how many I've done and how many... Sam Bender's done, whoever it is, Mike keeps those stats. You're very
1: uh, statistically oriented. I could tell you how many Dr. Robert Barber's done on a Tuesday and how many were cesareans and and how much each of them weighed just because this is the records we keep. The electronic medical record's been very, very helpful. Fortunately, we had the foresight to get our electronic medical record from the get-go when we got here 15 years ago. Unfortunately, they're very technical and you can't hack into them. And so i keep a shadow record of all of our deliveries and our obstetrical patients Uh, and dr fox has worked with me to try to make it as objective as possible as searchable as possible and many of our papers have emanated from data that i've collected over the years the preterm birth data the age uh, and mode of delivery data i mean dr fox and dr barber have an enormous wealth of, of research and i'm happy to have contributed to for some of the statistics From my database. It's critical. And also, tell us about your database of music. So music is probably part of being the shy, withdrawn person, pretty much 24-7, probably not when I'm sleeping. But for the most part, I'm always listening to music. There's classical music playing in my office while I'm meeting with patients. For many years, while I was delivering, I would play music for patients that were getting induced, mellow music. There was a more upbeat set of music called my pushing mix. So for the second stage of labor, there was a second set of music. And I'm constantly talking to patients. It's just a nice diversion to talk to them. What kind of music do you listen to? Which artists do you like? And and get into some of the trivia of that. Uh, and so it's been a passion of mine for many years. Music and photography. are well, my I was th- going to get to photography. Don't you two- worry about that. Or <laughs> my two indoor or uh, more calm um, uh, hobbies right?
0: and patients always got to request their music for scheduled c-sections you would take down the requests and you know i think it was the 50,000 songs you had or whatever i think we're up to about 63,000 <laughs> so, so whatever whatever they wanted you want classic so, rock you want uh and you could even, or whatever you ask for you can and get And for
1: many years uh, uh on apple you could do an on-the-go mix and you could add four or five groups and you'd have a couple hours of music of, of exactly what they wanted to hear and they'd often come back at the postpartum visit six weeks later and go, did you know my son was born to Stairway to Heaven? Or, you know, my twins were born. One, one came out to this song. That one came out to Hey Jude. And it's, <laughs> it's just a lot of fun to reflect back on. And uh, so let's, let's get into the photography.
0: So Mike is a master photographer. Basically photographs everything that our practice does. And he photographs in his life and all his vacations. And he sorts through them. And he edits them, and he sends them out, and he shares them. Again, part of his personality of drawing people in and making connections, a lot of that's through photography. When did that start for you?
1: Well, it started in my teens and early 20s. A good friend of mine lent me a black and white, a regular film camera, and we'd roll a black and white film. And it's sort of gone full circle because when you roll black and white film, it costs you a couple of bucks to shoot 100 pictures. And we'd go to his apartment, we'd go to the darkroom, we'd develop them, we'd make contact sheets, we'd learn different techniques for you know, shooting and stuff like that. Then came color film slides and pictures. And every time you took a picture, that was another $1.50. Should I take a second one? And do I get double prints? Do I find the negatives? How do I make an enlargement? And so finally comes the, the 1990s and, and digital photography sort of redeemed me because it got free again. Uh, You could take as many pictures of things as you wanted. You would get uh, five or six pictures and one person's eyes are closed in one, one in the other. And so digital photography saved me. I fix them up, really minor, just cropping and changing contrast. And it's a lot of fun to to go to an event, a family event, a practice event, the holiday party, somebody's house and, and be able to get pictures to them the next day. The ones that came out, you take 500 pictures at an event and keep 200 of them and, and send them out. So, And back in the days when I was delivering, before cell phone cameras, patients would often come in and they would forget their camera. And so I had a portable camera that was digital. And so the trifecta was, I would play music during their labor, I would deliver the baby, and then I'd hand them my camera and they would take pictures of their baby and I'd get them a CD of the, uh, of the pictures of the baby. So that was the Silverstein trifecta over the years, and so I'm not a master photographer. I'm a good photographer, and uh, I really like capturing candid events and Capturing people in their element and and that's what's most gratifying for me. I've had professional photographers critique my photography and go this ought to be here and they ought to have three people in this one and you know enough is enough It gets the job done. It makes people happy. It makes me happy. And I think if you're covering the photography the music, and
0: the delivery, all that's left really is the liquor and the flowers, right? And then you are it's full service. And I don't think everyone realizes this, but I am pretty certain that Mike Silverstein is the person who invented the selfie, right? So now everyone's got our iPhones and you can flip it around and do the selfie or use a selfie stick. But Mike's selfie stick was his right arm and he would take that big Nikon camera and just point it at you and him put his arm around you, probably give you a kiss at the same time. And he started the selfie. You have selfies going back how many years now?
1: Well, back to film cameras, at least 25 or 30 years. Selfies before the word selfie existed. Um, that was sort of the picture. So when, the, when I'd lend them the camera, even if I didn't lend them the camera, they had their own camera, there would always be a picture of the mom in the bed with the baby in her arms, the dad on one side, me on the other. And the truth is, it's my left hand that's out. I, I just I know it's a little bit hard from where you're sitting to where I'm sitting, and and just even whether it's with their camera or my camera, get a, a selfie of us. And so I have a whole series of, of of pictures of of kids I've delivered with parents, the baby, and me
0: in the same picture. So now that we know who you are, uh, whether you call yourself a master photographer or not, in my eyes, you're a master photographer, a physician. Uh, somewhat of a comedian. Tell me about what have you learned in medicine over the years? You said you've been doing this a
1: long time, met so many people, things have changed. Most importantly, I would say, it's it's about the relationships that you develop over the years. Most people have a couple of dozen friends, a few dozen friends. I feel like I have several thousand friends. Uh, I've I've learned that the relationship is probably the most important thing about my career. I feel like I'm practicing outstanding medicine, even occasionally saving lives. But the, the part that rings my bell the most is seeing a patient that I might've delivered 20 years ago, talking about their health, talking about their care, where they're at medically, and then spending the rest of the time showing pictures of our kids and, and sharing what we're doing professionally and personally. And so I've learned that you can have thousands of relationships, each one just a little bit different than the other. Still practice excellent medicine. Provide a litany of services for your patients. uh, But greet the patients with affection and warmth and, and let them feel like they're coming to somebody they've known for years, that they feel comfortable bringing their daughters to, that they feel comfortable sending their siblings, their friends, and referring. Our practice doesn't advertise. It's all word of mouth. For the maternal fetal medicine doctors in the practice, especially, it's professional word of mouth. There are patients with... Immensely complicated problems that get referred to our maternal fetal medicine doctors because our outcomes are the best they could possibly be under those circumstances. And the doctors that aren't maternal fetal medicine that do probably a majority of the deliveries develop a different set of relationships. And and that's what I've learned. I've learned that it's all about the relationships.
0: It's an amazing lesson. And I can't agree more. And you're one of the finest role models that I've ever had. And I'm sure many others have ever had in terms of that art of not only taking great care of people and helping them in such a advanced and sophisticated and intelligent way, but also at the same time, making them feel so comfortable and making them feel so close and developing those relationships and they play off each other and having that relationship definitely helps you help them with their health care. And just so our listeners know, currently
1: you're practicing um, where? Where's your main location? So as of two months ago, three of us, Dr. Stephanie Lamb, Dr. Aaron Gottlieb, and myself, opened a brand spanking new office called Carnegie Women's Health. It's on 94th Street, smack dab between the Q train and the uh, 6 train, just above 2nd Avenue. We uh, the practice, that is, invested a chunk of change and ripped out all the walls down to the studs and have a brand spanking new practice. We have a consultative room. We each have our offices. We have comfortable exam rooms. We have an aesthetics room to to deal with. Again, what I talked about before, fat pad removal, uh, wrinkles, scars, things like that two dedicated medical assistants, front office staff, great coffee maker in the front, crackers included. Uh, But patients walk in, are quite impressed with the physical plant. They leave very gratified that they've been cared for both personally and professionally. In the near future, as the aesthetics kick off, uh, we're counting on being even busier. Wonderful. And also, there is a great podcast studio uh, in this uh, site, which is Exactly I, where we are right now. I heard that existed. I, I was hoping to visit it uh, someday, but uh, maybe my turn will come up and I'll be able to get interviewed by by the famous Dr. Fox. Well, Mike,
0: Dr. Michael Silverstein, this has been fantastic. It's always nice to sit down and chat with you, uh, particularly that we can share this with all of our listeners. We look forward to more conversations with you about certain medical topics and gynecologic topics and also running into you in the halls and getting my periodic hugs and kisses and whatnot. Thank you for coming. Appreciate your time. And we'll see you back soon. Thanks, Nadie. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw